Um, would you turn, the rest of us, would you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8 as we continue our journey through this book. And we're going to read uh, uh, the whole chapter this time. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdoms of Greece, and the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease, and he will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep this vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
You are the giver of visions. And we thank you for this vision that you gave to Daniel. And we thank you that you caused him to write it down. That we might receive the benefit of it today. And we thank you that you speak to us today, not through visions, but through your word. And we pray that you would give us understanding. For we, like Daniel, are astounded at this vision. But you, O God, can explain it to us. And we ask that you would do that. We pray for our kids and uh, children's worship. Lord, our desire is that this ministry would be used by you to bring them to saving knowledge of your Son. Would you accomplish this in your kindness? And for us, Lord, would you help us to learn to wait upon you and your appointed time. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah forty thirty one. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not go, get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Just a wonderful verse, isn't it? Just tremendous. It's the kind you'd want to put on a plaque. Right? And hang in your, in your house. You, you want to sing it, as we did just a little bit ago. Um, because it's, it's wonderful. But I think sometimes it's maybe a little more wonderful in theory than it is in real life. When I really think and, and experience what it means to wait upon the Lord, all of a sudden that becomes a, a, a difficult thing. It's, it's actually hard to wait on the Lord when He doesn't necessarily act swiftly according to our desire, right? Uh, the theme of Daniel is building God's kingdom while living in man's. Again, that's a great theme when we see success, right? It's a great theme to say we're building God's kingdom while living in man's when we're rescued from the fiery furnace, right? It's a great theme to build God's kingdom while we're living in man's when we see the king's heart turned to God and his life transformed by God's action in his life. It's great then. It's a great theme when he closes the lion's mouth. But what about when he doesn't? Like chapter 8. Did you notice? It's kind of a downer, right? It's like, oh my. I mean, you've got to look. There are two spots that I see that there's, a, there's some, some hopeful words that are there, but that they're even kind of buried just a little bit in the passage. And we'll, we'll glance at those here in a little bit. For the most part, it's just, it's just bad news. There's going to be oppression of God's people. That's what we see. So why are we going through it? One of the ways that preachers will go through this chapter is they start explaining, you know, it's a history lesson, right? And as I was able to, uh, the, the reason I'm preaching this is because years ago I was asked to, to teach through Daniel to uh, a class at African Bible College. And so I had to study it, and, and from that I was able to begin to develop some sermons. And, and in some of the, the lectures, you know, the, the temptation is, well, let's understand what each of the individual horns was. Let's talk about exactly how the horn was broken. Let's begin to look at all of those, and it becomes a history lesson. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily even what Daniel was focused on at the time. I think that there's a, a, a larger picture for us, and that is that God is showing that um, he's in charge, Right? He's telling us everything that's going to happen before it ever happens. For instance, he mentions Greece as being the, the kingdom that's going to come after the Medo-Persians. Now, understanding that the Medo-Persian Empire was going to be the first one, that took no great uh, uh, skill. They were still in the Babylonian kingdom. Belshazzar was the king. And uh, so we're, we're really looking at between chapters 4 and 5 of, of Daniel is where this is, is taking place. So Belshazzar is still the king. But they know that Media and Persia are growing in strength and are beginning to move in their directions. They know this is going to happen. It's, it's a possibility. So for him to say that, it's no big deal. But he says Greece. Alexander the Great hadn't even been born yet. And yet it's prophesying about him as being that great horn that uh, is the first ruler who comes in and is so powerful and begins to, to do this uh, mighty work and, and spread what they're doing. But God told them beforehand that this was going to happen. He said, here's the plan so that they might know. I'm just guessing, is it, is it possible there's anyone in the United States yet uh, over the age of five who has never seen Karate Kid? One of them at least, right? 
you, you know, you got the two different iterations of it. The first has four movies, and then you've got the 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 one new one with Jackie Chan, and and whichever one uh, is the one that you you are aware of. There's something about those movies that I think is the same in every single one of them. There's there's an idea that's being brought about. Whether you're talking wax on, wax off, or to put on the jacket, right? Doesn't matter because it's the same message. Because aren't both of those, it's ridiculous things that they're having to do, just super mundane things. And the person doing it has no idea why the master is telling him to do it, right? And it, there comes a point where they just get mad that the master is telling them to do these senseless things. And at that moment, they find out why, right? As the master begins to instruct them and begins to show them that this has all been training, well, we're kind of like that. We kind of like with God. It's like, well, we don't know why you have us doing this. We don't know why you're going through this. But he tells us ahead of time, which Miyagi never did, right? He tells us ahead of time so that we know. We know that he is active. We know that he has planned this out. That God is in control. And therefore, we can await the appointed time, right? Because he's in control. How do we do that? Well, I think there are three ways, uh, three principles, three ideas that we see from this passage that will help us. Now, as you go through the, the outline, um, we, we've had a, a, a change in schedule, and your pastor has been slower at changing than the rest of the congregation. We now have bulletin folders coming in on Friday morning. For the last year and a half, I've had Friday mornings to uh, get uh, the outline to a, a, a more ready spot. And uh, this week I had Friday morning too. However, the bulletins were already printed by that time. So you'll find in your bulletin that that part is blank. However, you'll see them up here if you're the kind of person that you've got to have your A and your B. Uh, it'll still be up on the screen. So just an explanation of how we're doing that. first point is that, that uh, we can wait on his appointed time as we know that God sets the time. To know that God sets the time. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, isn't this great? He's letting us listen in on this conversation between two angels. Awesome. Awesome. So what do angels talk about? Well, here we have, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? little bit of explanation of, of what he's talking about. He's saying, you know, this, uh, all of these things that he's been, been uh, presenting, how long is that going to go on that the sacrifices are going to be broken up? There's going to be a time in which there's, there's no sacrifices. And the reason for that is the transgression, the transgression causing horror. That means the discipline that's going to come upon the people of God. For the sin of the people, there's going to be this time in which God's going to take away even the sacrifice. And so that's what they're asking, uh, the angel is asking. Um, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Does that sound familiar? We're more familiar with seven evenings and then mornings, right, of creation. So it's talking about 2,300 days. It's very specific. Isn't that better than last chapter? How long is it going to last? Time, times, and half a time. What? How is that helpful in any way whatsoever? That can now mean anything, right? Absolutely anything. But here, he's very precise, isn't he? He's very specific. Now, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what is the 2,300 uh, days, and some say, well, at this point, this guy came up, and this individual was killed, and then at, at this point, this guy died, and it's that 2,300 days, and it's, you know, and, and, and we don't know either of the guys on either side of that, and what in the world are we talking about, and, and I don't know that that's the point, is it? I think the point that God really wants us to have, I think if he wanted us to know exactly, you know, like the date of each, he would have given that to us, but I think what he wants us to know is he set a time, doesn't he? He has a plan, and it's a specific plan. He knows precisely what he's doing. As a matter of fact, in verse 19, it's called an appointed time. An appointed time. Appointed. You schedule an appointment, right? And when you schedule an appointment, you make sure that everything in your life is, is set apart so that you're able to make it to that appointment. That's the point of an appointment, right? Is you, 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 you've got that set aside. Well, God has set an appointment. There is an appointed time in which he is going to act, in which he's going to do the deed or he's going to lift this discipline specifically for what they're dealing with. It's the, the same word that's used as appointed time is used in Genesis chapter 21 too, when we read that uh, Sarah conceived and had a child at the appointed time. 
It was the time that the angel had told uh, she and Abraham in chapter 18 that they were going to have a baby. It was one year later. It was exactly at the appointed time. God made an appointment. Here's when you're going to have the baby. And that's when she had the baby. It was exactly at that appointed time. It's also used in the book of Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk is the prophet who is really upset because uh, the, the uh, wicked were seeming to go and punish us and the righteous were... Uh, uh, and the, the righteous were suffering, and so he's concerned, and he tells God, and God tells him, yep, I know, and that's why I'm going to bring the Babylonians. <laughs> and Habakkuk's like, what, are you going to, you know what? <laughs> I don't like that so much, Lord. But then as he turns to God, in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it certainly will come. It will not delay. How many times does God have to make the point, look, this is really going to happen at exactly this time, right? The appointed time is absolutely certain, and it will not fail. And the same is true for the appointed time that God is talking about in the vision that we see with Daniel, that it's an appointed time. God is going to work out his plan and his way. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number seven, asks, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That God has determined before the foundation of the world, before the creation of time, before the creation of space, what was going to happen on this canvas, this this multi-dimensional, ever-changing canvas that God was going to paint. And he said, this is the time, this is the place, this is what I'm going to do. We understand that about God, that he has this plan, that he is sovereign and has declared what is going to happen. So that David says in Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. David recognizes that every one of his days has been written down in God's book, that God has determined what it was going to be, how it was going to be lived, what God was going to accomplish in David's life on that day. Every one of those days has been written down. Jesus turns our attention to that in the Sermon on the Mount in John six or Matthew 6, verse 27. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And we think about that and we say, oh yeah, worry doesn't help me. But by worry, don't we then make plans? Right? I'm worried about something bad happening to me, so I take steps to be sure that something bad happens to me. Is that going to add one hour to my life? He says, no, because God's already written down. It's already in his book. Every hour, there is an appointed time. Now this gives me hope when I think about hardships, when I think about the dark times that I go through, when Daniel is to look at the hard times that he was facing. Knowing that God is sovereign, God is good, and God loves me, gives me hope in dark times. The darkness will end precisely when God has appointed He will at the perfect time set all things right. Therefore, I can wait because I believe those true statements about God. He has appointed the time. Meaning then that there is an end. The suffering will not go on forever. The hardship will end. Are you familiar with the story of Aaron Ralston? Uh, He wrote a book of his experience called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. There's a movie about his life called 127 Hours. He was the uh, hiker who was in the Utah desert. And uh, as I read the autobiography years ago, I thought the theme was you can be stupid and still live. And that's really what he showed. I mean, he made just a whole lot of really, 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 really bad choices. Um, and one of them was he was going out hiking but didn't tell anyone where he's going, and he goes off into this remote part of Utah, and as he's going down one of these slot canyons, he, he steps on a rock, slips, starts to fall, puts his hand to the side, and then the boulder rolls onto his arm. And it's a 700-pound boulder, and it's got his arm trapped against the, the wall. Now you remember the story? And he said, uh, and so he stays there for several days, I guess 127 hours, um, and uh, is is 
trying to figure out, what do I do? And he tries to set up a, a sling and a pulley system to see if he could kind of pull it up, but, you know, he's totally out of position and can't get it to move. And, and so he's just trying to figure this all out, and, and he's going days without food and without water, and what do I do? And his hand is there. And he said early on, he thought, well, I should probably try to, to amputate my arm. That's what I kind of need to do. And he took out his knife, and he touched his skin. He's like, no, nah, I can't do that. And so he sat there for several days. He finally came to a place where he realized he was hopeless. There was no hope until he began to realize my only hope is if I amputate my own arm. And what led him to that was he realized that his hand had already died. And so it was going to kill him. It was just a matter of time. And it would probably kill him before he would die of starvation. But there he was. And it was that recognizing that I can put an end to this suffering, but it will mean incredible pain, great risk, and danger. But there's a way for it to end, and that gave him hope. Even as a non-Christian, it was seeing that there's an end to this that gave him hope. How much more for us? But we look at verse 19, and we see that uh, he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. As we recognize there's a time of the end, now, what, what is that talking about? It's not talking about the end of all time because it's talking about the Medo-Persian Empire and, and Greece. And if that's the end of all time, we don't exist, right? We're just figments of someone's imagination because it ended back in Greece, right? And so, so it's not that, but it's talking about a different end. And I think there are several different things that end, that even this passage begins to, to show us what it's an end of. And particularly, it's the end of, of uh, within their uh, discipline that they're facing. If we, we've, we've read verses 11 and 12, and I want to go back and, and just remind us of, of those. No, we didn't. Let's read verse 11 and 12. It that is the, the little horn even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will, be, it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will to prosper. He's saying this that he's talking about in verse 11 and 12 is going to come to an end. This is going to come to an end. What is this? What are these two things, these three things in, in verse 11 and 12? First of all, it's an end of the captivity. Remember that they are in captivity right now to the Babylonian government. And it won't be until the Medo Persian government, which is the ram that we saw, that they will be sent back to Judah, to where the captivity will end. But what we see from this is not only the, the captivity will end, but the oppression will not, right? The oppression is going to continue. They're still going to be oppressed un under uh, Cyrus or Darius, however you want to, uh, whichever of those that you're, you're looking at, are going to continue to oppress them. And then um, Greece is going to come in, and Greece is going to oppress them. And then we've already seen from a couple chapters ago that, that Rome is going to come in as well. And so the oppression is going to continue, but there will be an end of the captivity. There will also be an end of the regular sacrifices, he says. Can you imagine how distressing that would be? To basically have God tell us, I'm not going to allow you all to meet for worship anymore. You won't be able to sing the songs of praise. You won't be able to worship with drums or piano. It'll be taken away. You won't be able to gather with the people of God anymore. That's the significance of this statement. No longer can you honor God by following the regular principle of worship. It will be eliminated from an option. The sacrifices are removed. Can you just guess how distressing that was to Daniel to hear and to be concerned about that end? But he's saying there'd be a moment when that would end in which sacrifices would be restored. So that wouldn't be forever. And there would be an end of prophecy, but then an end to the famine. He says that he's going to fling truth to the ground. Going to fling truth to the ground. I think that's a, a reference to what Amos writes about in Amos chapter 8 and verse 11. In that day, sorry, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. That there'd be a moment, and it happens shortly after they, they are uh, brought out of captivity and these other kingdoms begin to take over, that there's that time of silence from God. 
that period of time, I believe about 400 years, in which God is not speaking to his people anymore. There's no prophecies. Because truth has been flung to the ground. But there will be an end to that famine. That too will come to an end. He says the discipline will end. In verse 14, he has one of those words of hope. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. There will come a time after the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes and there's going to be this time in which the, the, the sacrifices are taken away and he says there's going to be a time in which the worship in the temple is going to be properly restored. Properly restored. It's actually the Hebrew word sadiq. Right? Which means justified. It means righteous. And the just shall live by faith. The sadiq will live by faith. Justification, which means to line up with a standard. The holy place will be justified, which occurs after the word of God begins to come to the people again through John the Baptist. And that famine for the word of God has been lifted so that the word of God is incarnate and dwells among them. And he sets the holy place right. How does he set the holy place right? The holy place is not right by having sacrifice of of rams, bulls, and goats. That's not what makes it right. That's an image. That's a picture of the real holy place. The holy place that Jesus enters into as not only being the lamb, but also being the high priest and offering himself up upon the altar in the holy of holies, the true holy of holies, and he puts all things right. That's how the holy place is justified and the discipline is lifted as Christ takes upon himself all of the sins of his people. All that's, for the most part, dealing with Daniel and and the Jews. What about us? Your darkness will also end. The darkness that you're dealing in within your life. And, and maybe you're facing discipline. Maybe the fact is that you have, you've, you've wandered away from God. And you've kind of gone after your own way. And, and God has brought pressure on your life. And you feel it. And you feel that things aren't as they should be. Maybe he's pruning you. Maybe there's something good in your life that God is taking away so that he might produce something better. That's a possibility, right? He might be doing that in your life. But even so, it... It feels dark, it feels hard, it feels heavy. And we face that in our life. And the hope that we have is that is not the end. That that too will end. That the the, the dark times will end. The persecution of God's people will end. We've been praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And rightly we should. Because they're undergoing some persecution. But persecution there isn't new. Right? And it happened long before we ever went there and they were facing it. And it's also they're not alone. There's persecution throughout this world of God's people who are tormented for their faith, who are put to death for their faith. But it will end. There will be a day where there will be no persecution. The reign of wicked individuals will come to an end. The corruption that we see in governments around our world will one day come to an end to there will be one king and he's the king of righteousness. The rejection of truth that we see all around us where truth is set aside as being utterly and completely irrelevant will one day end and that's within the church and outside the church. It will end that there will be a day in which truth is upheld, believed, and trusted. Let's await God's appointed time when all of that will end. If we know that God sets the time, we can wait, knowing there is an end, and we can be courageous. We can courageously face the future because we know that God sets the time. 
I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid because what can man do to me if I'm trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? That's the question to ask. Do I believe that Jesus makes access to the Father possible? And He's the only way that I can do that. I invite you to put your trust in that because when that's the case, your eternity is secure. You are certain and you are held within the hands of God the Father and God the Son, secured by God the Spirit. And who can overcome the three of them? What can man do to me if God Almighty is holding me in His hands? I fear nothing. The worst He can do is take my body and then what? And then I'm in glory with my Savior awaiting the resurrection of the body that they can't even keep dead. But He will bring it to life one day. That allows me to be courageous. That allows me to step forward. I don't have to fear anything. I can move forward and do precisely what He's called me to do. I can go make disciples even if all around me have said, if you do, I will take your life. And I can say, but God has called me to make disciples. Why would I fear you? Why would I disobey my God? Who secures my eternity by His loving hands. Doesn't He say in Matthew 28 where He tells us to go make disciples, verse 20, For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. He's there with us so we can be courageous. The first step of, of, of awaiting God's appointed time is to know that God sets the time. And secondly, I need to believe that the battle is God's. To believe that the battle is God's. And I mean this in a different way than, than again, we think of. I mean, we, we sing songs about the battle belongs to the Lord, right? And, and we're all, you know, standing up and yay. And, and what do we mean by that, though? I think mostly we mean God's going to win through us, right? We're going to fight the battle, but it's His. But we still think we're going to fight the battle. And we like that because it gives us some delusion of control. As if we're actually able to accomplish something, right? And so we think that's the case. But what about those times when the battle is entirely His? It's not yours at all. Not at all. Like as we pray for our children. And in the end, I can, I can share my, 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 the message of truth with them, but I can't make them believe it, right? I can't do that. It's outside of my hands. It's outside of my ability. I can't do anything. It's entirely God's battle. It's not mine at all. That's a little harder, isn't it? To wait on Him. But that's real waiting on God. Verse 10 through 12. He says it grew up, that is the, the, um, uh, the little horn, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. I want to just focus on that for a moment. It talks about the host. The word there means it's the armies is what host means. Last week we sang uh, a mighty fortress is our God, right? And we, we know the, the part... Lord Sabaoth, his name. I know as I was a new Christian, I thought, so he's the Lord of the Sabbath? Is that what that means? No. No, Sabaoth means hosts or armies. He's the Lord of the host of heaven. That's what it's saying. Now, Martin Luther, as he's considering the battle that he's involved in, in bringing the Reformation, is wrestling with, with, with this idea, well, my fortress then is, is God. And it's the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of God, who is his name. And he's remembering Joshua. In Joshua, you remember the, the scene in which Joshua's about ready to take the uh, children of Israel um, in to walk around Jericho with that great strategy that no human would ever come up with. Just march around it seven times and blow your horn. That'll do. Okay, but he's about ready to do that. So needless to say, he's a little bit uh, uncertain about the, the, the whole situation. He's out walking late at night, and he looks over, and he sees a guy, and he goes up to him and says, are you for us or for our enemies? To which he says, uh, no, I'm the commander of the host of the Lord. And, and J Joshua does the right thing. He falls on his face as a dead man. He says, oh, oh, I didn't understand. Exactly, right? Who was it? It was Jesus, pre-incarnate. 
It was the Christ. It was the Son of God who was standing there as the commander of the host. And we see that commander of the host in this passage. Remember, it's, it's his sacrifice that's taken away. The commander of the host. And the host are his armies. The armies, the people of God is who he's talking about. The people of God are going to be attacked by Antiochus Epiphanes in particular and is going to oppress them and is going to, to tear them down. He, he goes on to, to talk about how... Uh, uh, He'll cause some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. The host are the people of God, particularly those that are engaged in battle that they might try to fight against Antiochus and they're going to be taking advantage. He talks about the stars. What do we mean by stars? Is he actually hitting these burning objects out in space and they're falling down? No. I think it's a reference to Genesis 15 where God tells Abraham that his descendants would be what? as the stars of heaven. And I believe he's talking about even some of the elect are going to be crushed by Antiochus Epiphanes and he's going to strike them down. That just because you've been chosen by God doesn't mean you're not going to have this, this disaster fall upon you. This sense of, 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 of helplessness that will be for the people of God. Antiochus will have his way with God's people. He'll mock their faith and desecrate the temple. Antiochus was a, a brutal person who seemed to have an extraordinary hatred for the people of God. So that he would bring a Jew out and would force them to choose between eating pig's flesh or having their head cut off. Think about that. And if they said, well, I'll, I'll eat the pig's flesh and, and ask God for forgiveness, then he would mock their faith, their pretend faith. You don't really believe the things that you say. But if they're faithful to God, they would lose their life. What a horrible place to be put in that type of a situation. And that's what Antiochus would do. He hated the Jews so much that he went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar to desecrate the temple. Why? He didn't have to do that, right? That's, that's just being nasty. That's just the point. He was striking out even against the commander of the hosts. Even against the Lord God Almighty. Verse 25 and 26. And through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence and he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes but he will be broken without human agency. Second word of hope. The vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told, is true, but keep this vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. He opposes even the prince of princes. In John 15, Jesus teaches his disciples about this. John 15 is... Um, it's called the Upper Room Discourse, but it's really after they've left the Upper Room. Um, they, when Jesus served the Lord's Supper for the first time, they were celebrating Passover. They went into the Upper Room. They celebrated Passover. He'd washed their feet, and he said, now we need to go, and they go for a walk. I think they walk through a, a, a vineyard, so he explains to them, I am the vine, you are the branches, and it is in this context that he's beginning to talk to them as he's moving toward the Garden of Gethsemane where he might be praying the high priestly prayer. All of this is taking place. And in John 15, he knows the persecution he's about to face. He knows the persecution they're about to face. He knows that his disciples are going to come underneath this intense uh, persecution, and most of them will be executed for their faith. They will become martyrs of his, and he wants to strengthen them, and he talks to them, and he explains to them what's going to be going on. And in chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. He's telling them that this persecution is a certainty, and they are going to face it. But he's also telling them that he has gone where they are going to go. That he has been there. There will be those times when we will feel powerless. And we must believe that the battle is God's. Even when we feel powerless, it's God's battle. 
and will rest in him. Because evil will arise. He shows us this picture of the ram who is the Medo-Persian empire, which would uh, come in and eventually send the people out of their, their exile. The goat is Greece with the first horn being Alexander the Great who moves quite swiftly. We looked at that, I think it was last week, and we looked at the leopard with four wings and he would move very, very quickly and, and would take over, but then he's cut off and suddenly he was gone and that's what we saw in his life. And then we have the little horn that rises up, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, um, is that horn. And all of these are, are the prophecies of what's going on. We talked a little about it last week. We look at it again and we recognize how hard this was for Daniel to hear, to recognize the oppression that was going to continue for the people of God, that it wasn't just a matter of good news and everything's going to be wonderful, peachy and happy and, and, and magnificent. But they were going to face these difficult times knowing that evil would arise. But God wants him to know it's going to arise and God knows it's going to arise so they know there will be an end. You and I will face evil in our lives. And we will feel powerless against that evil that we face. We'll probably face slander. And by slander, I don't mean the accusations that people bring against us that are like true, right? We've got plenty of that, right? There, people can, can point out the horrible things we've done or, or said in our lives and they've, they've witnessed. But we're talking about, don't you feel powerless when, when lies are made up about you? And they're spread and, and people believe them. And how awful. You feel so powerless in that type of, of an environment. And, and, and you face that. You may be ignored as being irrelevant because you're a Christian. You're a Christian, so no one wants to hear your position because it means nothing. Today, we aren't only viewed as irrelevant, we are viewed as the actual evil that is in the world that is causing the hardship. You'll be opposed Folks will stand against you for no other reason than you are a Christian. And you will be persecuted. What then? Will we believe that the battle is God's in those moments? Or will we stand up and we've got to defend ourselves and we've got to fight for our rights and we've got to make sure that we're asserting our goodness and our... Or will we wait? I remember a pastor years ago that uh, some people grew to dislike him and, and they spread a petition within the church to get rid of the pastor. They called for a congregational meeting for the pastor's uh, call to be voted on. The pastor said, I, I don't want to fight. I have no interest in protecting myself. If God wants me here, he'll keep me here. And so he attended his resignation. Never in my life have I been so proud of a presbytery as that presbytery who looked at that, saw what was going on, and said, I don't know if the Book of Church Order allows us to or not, but we're going to reinstate this pastor because this is wrong. And the man chose to not fight for himself because the battle was God's. And he waited. How hard is that? How much does that go against our instinct and our intuition? And yet it is right. And because of that, as I believe the battle is God's, I can rest. I want to go back to John 15 for, for a couple moments and, and look a, a little bit more closely at, at this passage. Um, we're going to look at uh, the earlier verses, uh, verses 18 and 19, um, because Jesus begins to expand this, this, this idea that he, he gave to us. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. In essence, Jesus is saying, look, they hate you and it's my fault. Right? I mean, that's what he said, isn't it? He says, because I chose you out of the world. If you were of the world, they wouldn't hate you. But I took you out of the world, so they hate you. But who do they really hate? You see, it's not our battle. It's not that they hate us for us. We, we aren't that magnificently holy that, that a non-Christian would just hate us for who we are. No, they, they hate Jesus. That's the one that's hated. The battle's his, it's not ours. We don't have to worry about protecting our dignity. We don't have to worry about protecting our rightness. It's God's battle. And in chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, 
so that in me you may have peace. These things I've spoken to you. Oh, you're going to be hated. You're going to be despised. You're going to be persecuted. Uh, you may be killed. And I've told you that so that you might have peace. <laughs> Can you imagine someone saying, Lord, it's not really working. <laughs> and yet it was. Why? Because I know he knows. And he's told me ahead of time. And I know that it's not me. It's him. And yet I am not... Um, and in the world, you will have tribulation. Here's the words that give hope. But take courage. I've overcome the world. The battle is God's. Remember the story of a Ugandan pastor during the persecution of Idi Amin who spent the morning preaching to a gathered crowd that came from many miles away and they would gather together to hear the preaching and he thought he was done and they said, no, keep preaching. He said, I have to take a break. So he goes into a hut to, to take a little break, take a little nap, to spend some time in prayer and as he enters into the hut, he's followed by three men with guns who point their guns at him and said, you're now a dead man. For they were three of Idi Amin's assassins who had come to kill him. And the story goes, as the pastor looked at them, he alludes to Colossians 3.3 and he says, You can't do anything to me, for I've already died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. What can you do to me? My life's already gone. I was crucified with Christ. There's nothing you can take from me. But I will pray for you. And the leader said, please do. I like that the pastor says in a very candid moment, he said, I prayed with my eyes open. <laughs> and the leader became a Christian. Because he was so great? Or because the battle was God's in the first place? And here was this man who chose, I'm just going to be faithful and trust God. And you know what? God would have been just as great if he'd have been killed. But God shows that his saving purposes go beyond our wildest expectations. Know that God sets the time. Believe that the battle is God's. And then, friends, stand firm. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 14, we read the words stand firm three different times in these four verses, five verses. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. He begins to talk about the rest of the armor of God that we're supposed to have. As the Apostle Paul talks about the spiritual battle that we're having, as he talks about the, the opposition that we're going to face, the darkness that we're going to walk through, he says, stand firm. This is continual command. Stand firm. I've been uh, listening to uh, a book. I think this is the thickest book I own. <laughs> it's uh, the biography of Winston Churchill's life, uh, Churchill Walking with Destiny by Andrew Roberts. Um, amazing man, tremendous leader. Um, I'm, I'm really astounded. I've been listening for a month, over 30 hours, and you can kind of see I'm, I'm almost halfway. But anyway, <laughs> it's, uh, it's huge. And by the way, I set my, my recording on one and a half times speed to make it quicker. Um, and it, there's a lot of words. Um, but it's Winston Churchill. You kind of had to, right? That's, that's the way it goes. You know, uh, at the time of uh, World War II, as Churchill was leading Britain through, and he was just exactly uh, the, the right man for that job. I mean, he was, he was absolutely appointed there and in many ways should be credited with, with Britain not being destroyed by Nazi Germany um, because of his, his tenaciousness and his wisdom and, and uh, and in some ways, his pugnaciousness, he, he, would, he would fight, he was ready, and, and that was all a part of who he was. But early in the, the war, the British people were convinced that Germany was a mounting an attack and they were going to invade Britain. 
and they expected about 500,000 uh, soldiers to come over across the channel and to invade Britain. And so that's a part of what they were dealing with uh, as a regular basis. Well, this is just a, a vignette from that time. Um, in the spring of 1941, he, that is Churchill, complained to Duff Cooper about the message, stay put, which would be sent out by the Ministry of Information in the event of a German invasion. First of all, it is American slang. <laughs> it's almost as though he didn't even go to the second reason. I think in some ways that was enough for him. It's like, okay, I just won the point. And, and so there we are. It's American slang. But he goes on. And, and he says, secondly, it does not express the fact. The people have not been put anywhere. Excellent. What is the matter with stand fast or stand firm? Of the two, I prefer the latter. This is an English expression. And it says exactly what is meant. I like that. It says exactly what is meant. And it does, doesn't it? I'm going to stand firm. Thus far, no farther. Here I stand. I can do no other. Does that sound familiar? This is where I take my stand. And I'm not backing up. Here we are. And that's the command to us as we understand that we're facing this, this opposition. And as we choose to await God's appointed time, there comes a point where we simply stand firm. To do that, we have to first obey. Okay, as I said those words, anybody go, oh, obey. Wait, 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 wait. Obey has a negative connotation today. It's been viewed that if you use the word obey, you're talking about legalism, right? Oh, so you're saying we just have to save ourselves. Is that what you're saying? That's it? I knew you'd get there eventually. It's just legalism. It's just moralism. It's just moralism. It isn't, it isn't Christianity. It isn't trusting in God. It's just us, us being moral people. We just got to be good folks. Is that what it's all about? There's an absence of grace in the word obey in our modern vernacular today. But not in the Bible. In the Bible, we see something very, very different. We don't see legalism attached to it. We don't see moralism attached to it. We don't see an absence of grace attached to obey. We find something very different. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Do you see the connection that Moses puts between loving God and obeying? They're interconnected. In chapter 30, Verse 16, he brings them even closer. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. Here we have, again, linked together the idea of obeying and loving. And which one came first? Love him. And obey. Love him and obey. So obedience is not a matter of us trying to make ourselves good enough in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. Obedience is simply saying, I love God. How could I love God and choose to disobey him? At the moment I choose to disobey, I'm, I'm not actually expressing love at that point, am I? Does that mean that I'm, I'm lost forever? No. But it just means I'm not acting consistent with loving God. Loving Jesus involves obedience. In John chapter 15, Jesus points that out in absolutely crystal clear words. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Can it be clearer? Is there any way that he could have taken away any more ambiguity from that statement? It's just laid out there for us to see. In verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. This connection of loving God and obedience is, is probably most beautifully stated in chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus obeyed. Because he loved the Father. 
We obey because we love Jesus. It's that connection that I want us to grasp. Daniel is commanded, keep the vision secret in verse 26. I did it again. Sorry, Holly. She was able to skip past, but we'll go back to verse 26 of Daniel chapter 8. The vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. He's told specifically, keep the vision secret. What was he supposed to do? Keep the vision secret. It's his command. What did he seek to do? Obey. Because it's what he was commanded to do, and he loved God. That's what he wanted to do. I wonder, what if we, out of love for Jesus simply ordered our lives after God's good commands, what would that look like? Does it seem that complex? Does it seem that complicated? Does it seem that impossible? That I simply want to make decisions based on what has God asked me to do? And I want to do that. Isn't that maybe what it means to follow Jesus? Psalm 119, verses 4 and 5. David seems to indicate that. He says, you have ordained your precepts. Why? That we should keep them diligently. Did he give us the commands so that we would disobey them? Did he give us the commands just as some sort of arbitrary rule to control us? No. But that we might obey them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. He prays, God, establish my life that I'm following after you and I'm being, living in obedience to what you commanded. Because it's right. Verse 6, he says, Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. And just seeing God's commands, I'm filled with joy and thanksgiving at his goodness. To obey and then to be faithful today. Daniel, what did he do? Verse 27. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. He carried on the king's business. What did he do? He went back to work, right? And did his job. It's as simple as that. That's what he did. He was faithful that day. There's a saying that's been attributed both to Martin Luther and to Martin Luther King Jr., that uh, all indication is it doesn't, neither one ever said it or wrote it. Um, definitely never wrote it, but apparently never said it. The first record of it that uh, scholars have been able to find is probably out of uh, a pastor of the Confessing Church uh, in the 1940s. The Confessing Church is the church that uh, came out of the, the Lutheran Church that uh, Nazi Germany had taken control of. And as the Nazi uh, party had taken over control of the church, a number of faithful pastors, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer, left and founded the Confessing Church. And it appears that it was one of those individuals in that context who said these words, if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Why? Because I was supposed to plant an apple tree today. That's why. I'm going to be faithful today. And I'm going to leave tomorrow to God. I'm going to be faithful today. What has God called you to? Be faithful to that. Has he called you to be a husband? Called you to be a wife? A child? A student? An employer? An employee? Maybe several of those, right? One thing he's called you to be, everyone here, he's called you to be a follower of Jesus. Let's be faithful today. It's a quote that's attributed to G. Campbell Morgan that I think summarizes this idea of waiting. Waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command. That means it's activity that I've been commanded to do. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. Third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. That's harder than what we think of putting on that plaque or wait upon the Lord. But it's right. 
Let's await God's appointed time. As we know that God sets the time, as we believe that the battle is God's, and we stand firm. Let's pray. Our Father, thanks. There's an element of this message that's just kind of a bummer. But there's an element that is hopeful and true. Because you have a time. Lord, help us to wait that time. To really wait. In faith. Father, as we see the the wickedness around us rise, I pray for Providence Presbyterian Church that you will make her a light upon a hill that declares to all around us that we're waiting on the Lord. We're not forcing our agenda. We're waiting on the Lord. And would you show yourself faithful? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.